Let's praise the Lord. How many are blessed by the music this morning? Amen? Amen? Praise the Lord. It's going to be great tonight. If you miss it tonight, I'm going to pray you have a sleepless night. Amen? <laughs> Let's stand and take our Bibles this morning, please. Joshua chapter 18. Joshua chapter 18. I want to say from our bottom of our hearts to uh, all the Falls Baptist Church Ensemble, thank you for being here with us. We're just so honored that you could be with us and uh, give our greetings to Pastor Van Gelderen. He's our, our good friend, and we're very thankful for just the partnership we have with that church and what God's doing. Tonight, what time? What time? If you want good parking, what time? Five. <laughs> yeah, we come here at five for good parking and... Uh, if you put a special offering in for the building, I might give you a reserved spot. Amen? <laughs> Come see me later there. No, I'm just teasing. But let's pray for a great, great evening tonight. And, uh, you know, music, music affects our lives. And this morning, we just got a small, small taste. By the way, how many believe that in heaven, that's all we're going to be doing in heaven? Amen? We're just going to be singing and rejoicing. You have to worry about your throat wearing out because you're, you're going to have a perfect, you're going to be perfect in heaven and you don't have to worry about if you sing in tune or out of tune. I was telling our Spanish tomorrow, by the way, pray for our Spanish speaking department. We uh, launched off unofficially our Spanish Sunday school and Brother Eugene, we had a great turnout this morning, man. Praise the Lord for that. And uh, it was just exciting to hear them sing in Spanish and, and preach the word by, was preaching them from Psalm 71 this morning. And uh, David said, he said, with, he says, I will, I will, uh, he says, with my lips, I will greatly rejoice. That's a great thought. He said, my lips, I will greatly rejoice with, thank, with singing. And I thought, you know what? I said, um, you know, we sing, God wants us to greatly rejoice. And you know what's a blessing about that? It doesn't matter if the person next to you is off key, right? Some of you get a little scared that well, he's off key. Well, maybe you're off key, man, you know? <laughs> But sometimes we think they're off key, and, and we, but the Bible says hey, it doesn't matter if you're off key, just says sing loud. He says, with my lips, I will greatly rejoice with singing. Now, listen, it, it's a tragedy. We come to church, and we're just, oh, yeah, we're just going to sing, do our thing. We kind of got an Eeyore spirit, right? And we need to be, we need, you know, more than a ball game, we need to come to church and say, praise God, God's here, amen? And to have a great excitement, enthusiasm, God's here. And let's do that this morning and tonight. Just rejoice in all that God's doing here. Joshua 18, verse 1. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. And they set up the tabernacle of the congregation there. And the land was subdued before them. That's important what we just read there. They assembled at Shiloh. Now, that's a different message here, but they assembled at Shiloh. They've conquered the land. The Bible says in verse 1, all the land was subdued before them. And then verse 2 says, and there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. In other words, that there were still cities to be possessed, but seven of the tribes had not taken possession of it. And verse 3 says, Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? This morning we're going to look at verse 3 as our launching point in understanding what does it mean when God says to take possession of what He has given to you, but it's still not been taken. He said to the children of Israel, this is the whole congregation of the people that had crossed the Red Sea. Many of their fathers had died in the wilderness. Forty years had gone by. 
They've crossed over the Jordan River. A new generation has seen the power of God separate waters, something that was impossible. We know from a previous study that the Jordan River, because it was overflowing because of the melting of the snow on the mountaintop, that the, the width of the, of the Jordan River was probably as long as a mile to a mile half in width. The depth and the raging of the waters was, was very dangerous to cross under normal circumstances. God parted those waters and put them hither and thither, as the Bible says. Cities have been conquered. The Bible says the children of Israel still not possess the land. A little boy went to his father and he said, Dad, I got a question for you. Of course, like a good dad, he said, Yes, son, what you, what's your question? And the boy said, The teacher was reading the Bible about the children of Israel building the temple, the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea, the children of Israel making the sacrifice. And he says, All everything we read in the Old Testament about the children of Israel. And he said, I got one question. He said, He said, Well, son, what's your question? He says, Well, I read about the children of Israel. What did the adults do? That's a good thought. We ingrain when our children live for God, read your Bible, pray, dress nice, come to church. But what about the adults? And we know the figure speech, children of Israel represented the entire multitude. But this morning, what about you? What about me? There's some things about the Christian life you have yet to take possession of. Our Father, this morning, bless our limited time together here. We've already been encouraged by by song and by music that I believe that has glorified you. I believe has exalted the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, in a very special way, would you tenderize our hearts? Would you help us today that as we come before the presence of God, we need you to cleanse us to wash us from what the writer James calls all superfluity of naughtiness and filthiness of the flesh. And that we would receive with a teachable heart what he calls meekness. What we would receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save souls. We know that your word is living. We know that your word has a ministry Today, do a great work in our hearts. Inspire us to live for you. Encourage someone here today who's not 100% sure where they'll spend eternity, that today they'd realize they could have a destiny and a date with God that will be unforgettable by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Settle our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been in the study of the book of Joshua now for several weeks. In the book of Joshua, the theme is about the victorious Christian life. Everything we do in life is about living in victory. You play on a sports team, you want to be on a sports team that is victorious. There's more excitement in a locker room about winning a game than there is about losing a game. Amen? There's something to be said when a church has a great day, when a young person has studied hard and prepared and they go and they, 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 they do well in their midterms, their finals. You know, when you get an A, you get an A+, plus, there's a great thing about that. When you get a promotion in your, in your career, in your job, when you land that first job, there's something to be said about being victorious in everything you do. And Joshua, as he writes through this book, 
He's encouraging us about the victorious Christian life. Israel has at this point now, as we get to chapter 18, they have their, that five of the tribes have claimed their possession. They've taken hold of the cities that God wanted them to have. Five of the tribes. Now, when we read this, the Bible calls it different terms. It calls it their possession. The Bible calls it their inheritance. In the book of Hebrews, which we'll be looking at a little bit later this morning, the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 calls it the rest, R-E-S-T, the rest of the believer. And we really haven't accomplished anything in the Christian life until we take possession of the inheritance. We really haven't gone anywhere in terms that's monumental as far as claiming all the, the, the blessings of God that God has for us until we claim the inheritance. They have crossed the Jordan River. They've watched God help them to conquer the city of Jericho. They messed up at the city of Ai, but God gave them another chance. By the way, how many are thankful today that God gives us another chance? Amen. And God enabled them to conquer the city of Ai. And then they go on and they decide that, you know, these kings are having this, this, this confederacy against us. And so Joshua leads them through the night up into the mountain areas close by where they're at a Gilgal, and they're trampling up through night. And they probably went 30-something-plus hours without sleep. They cramped, They went up there. They started winning, and God did some miraculous things. God was, was slaying more of the enemy through hailstones than by the sword. And Joshua, though he was tired and very worn out from having traveled and fighting, just got a new surge of energy that God gave him. And he prayed a very, very incredible prayer. It's a very bold prayer, very courageous prayer. He said, God, I'm going to ask you to do something. He says, I don't don't want this to go on to the next day. He said, Lord, would you hold the sun still for me for 24 hours for an entire day? Would you hold the sun still so I can get the job done? And God did it. And the Bible describes that incident that never before and never after that has a man ever prayed for God to hold the sun still. Never before did anybody see anything like that nature, and they won victoriously. And as we get through those chapters, we read that the children of Israel, and led by Joshua, conquered 31 major Canaanite cities. Caleb goes in and says, Joshua, remember, Moses promised me to, to give me Hebron. Remember he promised that I claimed the city of Arba? We read that just two weeks ago. And Caleb led the way. He claimed that area was filled with giants and an area that's still not been conquered. He conquered it. And now we get into chapter 18. Five of the tribes, two and a half tribes had already received their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan River. They had done their part. They went back to claim the inheritance that Moses gave them. Two of the two and a half, the other tribes, uh, Judah Ephraim and Manasseh had just gotten their possession in chapter 16, 17 and now going to 18. Now we get to over this passage here in chapter 18. Notice verse 3. And Joshua's looking at seven of the tribes. Perhaps about a million to a million and a half people. And Joshua is an older man. Probably at this point in time, 95, maybe 100 years of age. He looked at these seven tribes. He says, hey, five tribes got their possession. What are you doing? What are you doing? It's there. And he asked the question, how long are ye slack to go to possess the land? Now what Joshua is saying there is kind of like a, a sports team that has gone an entire season. They've been victorious. They've had some defeats, but they've been victorious. 
They go into the playoffs. And they're, you know, and everybody just ups their game when they go in the playoffs. And they go in the playoffs and they've been victorious to the playoffs. They've got some scars. They're a little bit tired. They're a little bit worried. And now they're coming to the championship game. And the championship game decides the entire season. The championship game, when you go there, it's not about, it's not any more longer about what you did during the season or what you accomplished during the playoffs, though those are important. It's about, are you going to finish the season as a champion or are you going to finish the season as second place? And now you're looking at this team that's entering, they're, 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 they have, the, the, the odds are in their favor, they're going to win. Everyone believes because of what they have done, they're going to win, but they're tired. They're second-guessing themselves. They're kind of wondering what they're going to do. They know that the opposition is the underdog, and they're going to up their game. And the and the and the favored team going in is a little bit concerned as to whether or not going to win or not. And here's what we're looking at. Joshua is like the coach looking at this team, and he said, Guys, listen, it's game time. It's game time. We only have one shot at this. It's game time. We're going to go into this game. We're going to win. It's game time. We're playing to win. It's game time. We're playing to win the championship. That's what Joshua's asking, telling them right here. He's giving them the same encouragement a coach would give to a team who enters the championship game and realizing that everything now is put on the game right here. Either you're going to win or you're going to lose. And Joshua's looking at this group of people and he's saying, look at there's seven of you that have not possessed the land. It's game time. It's time for us to go in. We can't go look back. We can't be defeated. It's game time. We've got to go in and we've got to possess everything we're, we've that God has given to us. And this morning, I want you to notice that it's game time. It's game time for us, just like them, to go in and take advantage and possess all the things, that God, the blessings that God wants you to have. I want you to see three things very quickly about our passage of Scripture. Notice, first of all, the protest. The Bible says in verses 1 to 3, they're assembled there. The land was subdued before them. And then <coughs> we just saw seven tribes were there that had not received their inheritance. It wasn't that Joshua didn't want to give it to them. It wasn't that Joshua was holding back. He's looking at them. There was just no, there was no emphasis that I really want to get it done. There was really no emphasis that I'm really serious about my possession. There really was not an emphasis. I'm going to take what God has given to me. And Joshua's a loving senior there at that time. He goes up to these people and he protests their delay by asking, how long are you slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given to you? He's saying, listen, God, is, it's, our, it's there for you. It's like this, like for you and I, for the Christian life. God has given to you and me the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has given to us the holy, blessed word of God. God has given you and I the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the moment we're saved. God has given to every believer who's saved one or more spiritual gifts to serve him with. God has given us to a blessed and wonderful local New Testament church that we can fellowship with other brothers and sisters and we can have God's word preached to us to grow our faith. God has given us mentors in the faith. God has given us all of these things. He says God is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places of Christ Jesus, but you're not making advances. You're not going forward. You're not taking advantage of this. He says, how long are you slack to go to possess the land? Notice they were slack because they were feeble. The Bible says here in verse 3, they were slack. The word slack is kind of an interesting word. The word slack means to have 
weakened hands. It means to basically drop the ball, to be left alone or to forsake. It means to be idle. It means to fail. Listen to some applications of this word. It's used 46 different times in the Old Testament. Ezra 4.4 Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Nehemiah 6.9 For all they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, God, strengthen my hands. Proverbs 24.10 says, If thou faint, or if you drop the ball in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. They were feeble. They had gone to the place. They had fought 31 battles or more. They had conquered along the way with their brothers and sisters there. They fought along the way. The men stood with the men. And the ladies stood with the ladies. And they fought their battles victoriously. And they saw the power of God at work. They saw God doing some things for them that was beyond their understanding. Now it was time to conquer the land. But their hands were feeble. They were slack. They felt weak. They felt insecure. They felt unsure about themselves. They weren't sure if they were ready. They were feeling like, well, you know what? We're not sure we want to fight any more battles. And we're not really sure we want to pray anymore. We're not sure we want to read any more Bible. We're not sure we want to go to any more church. And Joshua says, how long slack ye to obey the Lord? Their hands were feeble. I wonder this morning, could it be that I'm talking to someone here today? Your hands are feeble. They've been weakened by adversity. They've been weakened by crisis. They've been weakened by an illness. They've been weakened by sickness. I praise the Lord this week as we've had a week where our church body has had some trials. We've had Brother Gene Yee go through cancer surge this week and he's home recuperating. And Carla Delao, her, her father, Carlos Santillon, down in Mexico City, who's been to our church several times when he visits his family up here and has heard the gospel, had major cancer surgery on the other day, on Thursday. I thank the Lord that though this man had the surgery, of course, they, it was a long surgery, it was a detailed surgery. And Mr. Santillon came out of it, but they're waiting for the test results. Along the way, one of our missionaries, Brother Dan Garland, has a, has a brother-in-law who's a pastor there in Guadalajara, Mexico. And Pastor Murillo was burdened for this man, Mr. Santillon. And Carlos, Pastor Murillo went there to see Mr. Santillon and Carlos, Carlos brother. He went to see them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell them they needed to get saved. And I'm thankful to tell you this morning that yesterday Mr. Santillon and his son trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. I'm thankful for that, that God was working through that. And I'm thankful for a pastor down there in Guadalajara who wasn't content with just shepherding the sheep that God has given him, but realized that God had put before him a man and, and, and his son who needed Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I'm saying today as we consider that maybe our hands are weakened by adversity or some health trial or opposition we have at home. Maybe you're the only one living for God in your family and everyone else is giving you a difficult time. Maybe you might even feel that you're being persecuted or maybe you're feeling the pressure from family traditions, where those family traditions want you to bow before God or to worship certain things that, that, are not, uh, that are not appropriate for you there. And maybe they're putting pressure on you to be successful. Whatever it may be, we see this children, this block of people, they were slack because they were feeble. They were slack because they were feeble. But notice, they were slack because they diminished in faith. Listen, they had great faith when it was time to claim the land. They had great faith to cross that Jordan River. They had great faith to walk around the city of Jericho several times for seven straight days and watch God as they blew the trumpets. The walls came down without their intervention. They had great faith to believe that God would give them another chance with the city of Ai. They had great faith to believe that God would help them to conquer the giants. They had great faith. But now there's this place where seven of the tribes, they'd seen five of the tribes take their inheritance and claim their blessings and go on. But they had been slack. Their faith had diminished. Their faith had become small. May I say to you this morning, brother, sister in Christ from a pastor's heart, if we're not praying, our faith will diminish. If we're 
we're not reading our Bible, our faith will diminish. If we're not spending time coming to church and focusing on the worship of God, our faith will diminish. If we're not very careful, we'll let criticism, we'll let things that are said to us that might be helpful to us to diminish our faith. It might be there, there might be a sin issue that you're struggling with. Whatever it may be, it could be like them. Not only were their hands feeble, but they were diminished in their faith. I wonder this morning, in the midst of Lord, as we enter our fall season, as we're trying to serve the Lord, as we're trying to make an impact in this area for Jesus Christ, as we even endeavor tonight to have hundreds and hundreds of visitors here tonight to hear the gospel through music and through song. I wonder tonight, deep down in our heart of hearts, if some of us feel like our faith is so small. We feel so diminished. We feel like we've been beaten up by our world. We've been beaten up by our adversity. We've been beaten up by opposition. We've been beaten up by a crisis. We've been beaten up by something or the other. Whatever it may be this morning, we see a protest. Joshua stands up and he says, how long slack ye to possess the land? And maybe you're at the verge right now. You feel a little bit fable and diminish your faith. I want to encourage you with the same words of Joshua. Don't, don't be slacking off. Realize that God has something for you to do. Decide this morning, if nothing else, you're not going to slack off. You're not going to be discouraged. You might be one out of millions, but decide today, just as Joshua tried to challenge them, do something great for God for his glory. We see the protest, which you notice secondly, which you notice their performance today. In verses 4, 4 through 10, we see Joshua, 4 through 7, we see him giving some words of instructions to them. It sounded very similar to the day when Moses called out 12 men out of each of the tribe, one man out of each of the tribe, to go to search out Kadesh Barnea for 40 days and search it out. And Joshua does something similar, but not in the same context per se. He said, I want you to go check it out. Maybe you're feeble, maybe you're diminished in faith because you need to take another look, you need to take another survey. Let me encourage you today, and I say this because Brother Ted is trying to do something for God over and when he gets back to China and uh, you know he's going to go there and he's encouraged just by being with his home church and his sending church he's encouraged by being here and first thing he did when he got off the plane he actually was on the plane I had told him earlier that we're having the special the special weekend and, and it, it just happened that God put him next to a couple that was flying back to the states and they live in Union City and he gave them encouragement to come to our church Lord willing they're either here this morning or be here tonight and he just got encouraged by that first thing brother Ted said when he got here pastor so good to be home so good to be back in church it just encourages me to be around our brother and sister in Christ. You know, and that's the way it should be. We should come to church like that. But when he goes back, he's going to feel like one among a million. He's going to feel like his soul is among lions. He's going to feel like he's all by himself. And maybe you feel that way about that. But today, as we consider this, we see Josh encourage these people. Maybe the seven tribes felt like in their diminished faith, there was no hope for them. Maybe they just couldn't get it done. Whatever it may be, Joshua didn't look at the excuses. He didn't even consider the excuses. He didn't consider all those things. He considered one thing. We need to go in. You need to possess the land. And so we notice the focus on the performance. Now, to help us with that, the Bible helps us as we study the Bible, both Old and New Testament. It helps us sometimes where we find, we seemingly are trying to find out, okay, how did they do this? How this was accomplished? We sometimes have to study our Bible in such a way and to understand the context of things to understand how did God take care of that? Now, I want you to notice, if you'll turn with me over to the book of Hebrews for the next few moments, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The book of Hebrews is a parallel passage to exactly where the nation of Israel is at right then and there, there in that mountainous area in that land of Canaan. And the book of Hebrews, as he's talking to them, uh, and which I believe was Apostle Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews, Paul is addressing believers who were saved. These people that got saved, these were believers. These were saved individuals. By the way, you ought to get saved today if you're not saved. Amen? And these people were not, they were saved. But they were not growing in the faith. 
And they had, because they were not grounded in the faith, they didn't understand their Bibles. Some, some, uh, what they call, what the Bible calls these Judaizers, these, these men, these practitioners were coming alongside and tell them, well, your faith is not complete in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was less than Moses. And Jesus was less than the angels. And Jesus is, he was not, they were, they were, they were doubting and casting lies about the deity of Jesus Christ. And these believers at that time, these Jewish believers, they were saved, but they were not, they were not going forward in their Christian faith. And you read through the book of Hebrews for the, the, the first 11 or 12 chapters. It deals with believers who are going backwards in their faith. They were not taking hold of their of what we would call their possession or their inheritance. Well, he addresses that here in, in Hebrews 3 and 4. He talks about the fact that they had not attained or obtained what he calls the rest of the believer. Now, sometimes if you read Hebrews 4, you read that word, the rest of the believer. I've even heard pastors misappropriate this or misapply this. They think the rest means a vacation time. They think of the rest meaning, why well, can kick back and not serve God. That's not what it's talking about there. The word rest is synonymous with the idea in Joshua 18 about an inheritance, about a possession. It's about there's something waiting for you to claim, but you've got to claim it. If you don't claim it, it's not yours. And so he talks about the fact that these believers, they knew the word of God and they were hearing the word of God, but they were not obeying the word of God. They, they were just kind of stagnating there. They were just kind of standing still, kind of like these seven tribes that, that Joshua was talking to. And he said, how long, he says, how long are you slack to possess the lamb. And so these believers in Hebrews 3 and 4 were at the same place. In Hebrews 3 and 4, they were not possessing the land. Notice in Hebrews 4 how he addresses that. Would you notice that with me this morning? Go to Hebrews 4 and look at verse 8. Are you there? Say amen if you're there. In verse 8 he says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also sees from his own works as God did from his. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, Jesus there is, is, in, is, 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 is the, the context there of Jesus is speaking about Joshua. Joshua and Jesus in the book of Hebrews, if you would. Joshua's, na- Joshua's name, instead of putting Joshua, he meant to, they, they used the name Jesus. The, the meaning is the same, Jehovah's salvation. But the context is talking about Joshua there and Joshua possessing the land. For Jesus wanted to give them rest or Joshua wanted to give them rest. These children of Israel that we're talking about here in Joshua 18, they were stagnating. They were not going anywhere. And just like that, the believers during Paul's time were at a place where they were not taking possession of what God wanted them to do. They were stagnating. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left of us of entering to that rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Paul was concerned. There were these believers that had gotten saved. They had their assurance of their salvation, but they were not growing in the Lord. They were not laying hold of all the privileges and the blessings of Jesus Christ. He said, You're, you're missing out on the best things in life that God wants you to have. And so we find here in chapter 4 of Hebrews, he's giving them a word of encouragement. And we want to apply these words of encouragement seeing how those seven tribes, as we read through 18 and 19, how those seven tribes went in to possess the Lamb. Because Hebrews 4 fills in the blanks and helps us understand what did they do to change their situation? How did they change their thinking? How did they change their heart? How did they go from being unmotivated to being motivated? How did they go from being uninspired to being inspired? How did they go from being disobedient to obedient. How do they do that? And we see their performance. You see this morning, God gives you and me exactly everything we need to succeed in the Christian life. And so as you look at Hebrews chapter 4, notice beginning verse 11, we see how he tells them, it's game time. Here are the rules. Here's the chart I'm going to give you. It's game time. Let me show you how to obtain that rest. Let me show 
you how to claim that rest that God wants you to have. Let me show you that you have, you're not complete until you've gotten all that done. He says, let me show you how you can get this job done for God's glory. Notice, first of all, if we're gonna, if we're gonna enter that game and win the game, if we're gonna claim the inheritance that God wants us to have, number one, which you notice verse 11, we must be earnestly diligent. He says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. He's talking about here the word labor. He says, we must, first of all, be earnestly diligent. Now, I like that word labor that's used there in verse 11, because it's a word used many times in the New Testament. It's a Greek word called spudazo. And it doesn't have the idea of labor like going to your job in the morning. It has the idea of being extremely into what you're doing. It, I use the term earnestly diligent. It means to hasten, to put your feet in duty in what you do. Solomon describes it this way in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. When we find the translation of this verse, we find that it's used in a wonderful context throughout the New Testament. For instance, Ephesians 4, 3. Endeavoring or working hard, putting all of yourself into what you're doing. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study. It's the word study. Study or endeavor or to be earnestly diligent to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He tells in 2 Peter 1.10 in the matter of growing in the Christian faith. Wherefore the rather, brethren, look at the word, give diligence, endeavor to, put all of yourself into, study hard, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. What is he saying there? Well, first of all, we realize there's much that God wants us to claim. There's a possession God wants you to have. There's an inheritance God wants you to have. You cannot, you cannot say that you've entered into your rest until you claim all the things, the spiritual blessings you have in Christ Jesus. You really cannot enter into your spiritual rest until you really are learning how to practice prayer until you're really starting to get into a systematic habit of reading the word of God. And you really are at the place where you're involved in serving God, the local church. He's saying here, we must be earnestly diligent. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. He said these believers had stagnated. They started doubting God. That's where I gave that idea in the first point about the protest. They were diminishing their faith. When unbelief sets in, when we think like this, well, it could happen to Pastor Fawn, but it doesn't happen for me. Oh, you know, maybe that's just the Bible. It doesn't happen now. That was for a different dispensation. And I remind you this morning, that all the promises of God that God gave for the Old New Testament, they still apply for today, amen? You can still claim them. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God wants to work in our lives, but we must be earnestly diligent. If you want to grow in the Christian faith, if you want to go further in your life, you want to see what God can do. You've got to step out by faith. You've got to just be earnestly diligent. Listen, nothing good comes out of the word of God if you don't apply yourself to study diligently the word to give back to other people what God has given to you. So he tells them, number one, you must be earnestly diligent. Notice verse 12. Second, he tells them they must be earnestly discerning. Now notice what's happening here in verse 12. Verse 12 is a, is, a, is a wonderful, encouraging verse to us about the Word of God. But in the context of the passage, he put that there for this reason. When he starts writing the book of Hebrews, he's talking to these believers who are going backwards in their faith. And he helps us understand this in chapter 2, verse 1. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says we ought to give the earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we let them slip. Now, these believers were not grounded in the faith. And because of these Judaizers that had come alongside to blindside them, 
And we're telling them, you've got to add Jesus, you have to add, you have to add the, the ceremonial works of Judaism back to your salvation to be saved. By the way, you don't have to ask anything to Jesus to be saved. Jesus is all you need to be saved, amen? You don't have to ask anything to Jesus, you don't have to ask anything to salvation. Many people think, I've got to work to, 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 be, to be saved. No, Jesus Christ did everything for you to be saved. Thank God our sins were paid for in full when Christ died on the cross for us. But when we look at this passage, these believers didn't grasp that. They were listening to these persuasive teachers that were getting up in, 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 in local assemblies and said, well, you know, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't as good as Moses. Or Jesus was a good man, but you need to add Judaism. You need to have the ceremonial practice and the Passover. You need to keep doing those things in order to be saved. These believers were confused. They were so confused, they said, well, you know what? I don't know what to believe. So they stopped reading the word of God. They stopped going to church. They just kind of tuned out the preacher as the preacher got to preach. And so Paul realizes, he writes Hebrews 2.1. He says, listen, therefore, we must give the earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we let them slip. And there, he's talking about the fact that the first step is they're on, a, they're on the path of a spiritual decline. Because later on in verse 3, in chapter 2, verse 3, he asks this question, how should we escape if we neglect so, so great salvation? And he wasn't talking about in the context of unsaved people not being saved. He's talking about believers who are not claiming everything God wants in the have and will one day stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of their lives, what the things done in their body, whether good or evil, and they will not give a good account of, of, of their representation of Christ. And so he's talking about the fact, hey, God's word is stagnated. God's word is not working in you. It's not God's fault. You're not letting it work in you. He says, you're treating God's book like it's just any other book. You're treating it like a novel. You're treating it like an encyclopedia. You're just treating it like a book of facts. You're not really letting the Word of God work your heart. And so he tells them, you must be earnestly diligent, but you must also be earnestly discerning. Look at verse 12. For the Word of God is quick. That means it's alive. By the way, it is alive. Amen? It's quick. And it's powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Now what he's telling us there is that God gave us his word, and his word must have a ministry in our lives. If you're going to possess the land, you've got to let God's word work in your heart. Notice, he doesn't put the application for you and I discerning God's word, though that's important. He's saying, let God's word discern you. Let God's word work in you where it's discovering, helping you to discover what you need to change, what you need to do differently, what you need to apply, how you can be a disciple of Jesus Christ, how you can live for God. It's a discerner of the thoughts and tents. Listen, the word of God corrects us and we got goofy thinking. Amen. The Word of God corrects us when our thinking is not on the same page with Him. The Word of God corrects us when we realize that we want to, that we, we just kind of ignore a commandment. When the Word of God works in our hearts and helps us understand that. Uh, here's a good example. In the, in the book of Judges, we have the story about this, this wonderful hero by the name of Ehud. And Ehud, the Bible says, was a left-handed man. And what it means, he was, he was, what it meant by that, that most, most people believe that his right hand somehow was disabled and not able to use things very, could hold things very well. And so he used his left hand to the best of his advantage. And back in those days, if you were left-handed, you were considered, you were considered an odd person. You weren't, you were just not part of the crown on things like that. Over in San Francisco, if you go to Pier 39, they have a store there for left-handed people. I thought it was kind of interesting there. And everything's for left-handed people to do things. And, uh, and it's just the fact that, that that, that, that it, there used to be a time where people thought that left-handed people were disadvantaged and they were weak and things like that. And, and so Ehud was not considered a very likely person to succeed. 
But he had volunteered. He said, I'll go. God called him to go to this king by the name of Eglon. Eglon was the king of Moab. Moab had come down as God's uh, instrument of judgment against Israel because Israel had been sinning against God and had gone to gross idolatry and God had to get their attention. And they cried out to God and asked God for help. And God raised up this deliverer by the name of Ehud. Ehud decided, you know what, I'm going to go in. I'm going to bring a message to this, this king by the name of Eglon. And I'm going to, and he, and he, and he made this two-edged dagger. And the two-edged dagger he put on his right side. Normally right-handed men, they would put their sword or their, 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 uh, or their knife on their, on their left hand. So, they, so by putting on his right side, nobody, nobody suspected to check his right side for where this dagger would be. And it was long enough that it would do some damage. And he enters into the presence of King Eglon and they're thinking he's bringing a gift to them. And he says, I have a message from God to thee. And as he comes before him, he gets really close to Eglon. If you can imagine, Eglon's right here to where my pulpit's at here. And he takes and he reaches to his right side. He pulls out, this, he pulls out that two-edged dagger and he thrusts it in deeply into him. As he thrusts it in deeply into him, he goes all the way, he plunges in. The Bible says it went in so deeply into this man who is, who is grotesquely obese. It says that, that all of his abdominal areas swallowed up the knife. He couldn't get his knife back out. And the Bible says something very interesting. As he plunged the knife into him like this, he plunged the knife into him, the Bible says the dirt came out. Now, that's kind of gross, amen? But uh, Especially before lunch. But what it means by that is that all of his innards came out. Hey, that's a good story and illustration for us. We need to get the Word of God to discern us and to pierce us and to work in us in such a way that as it discerns us that that's the way the dirt comes out of our lives. Amen? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Is God's word discerning you this morning? Are you willing to admit who you really are? What God wants us to change? If you're not saved that you need to get saved this morning? As the writer of Hebrews is telling him, you need to possess the land. You need to claim the rest of the Christian life. You must be earnestly diligent. Don't just sit there. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Amen. Onward, Christian soldiers. We must be earnestly discerning. We must be earnestly diligent. But notice the third thing he tells us. We must be earnestly discoverable. Verse 11, we must be diligent. We're going to claim our inheritance. Verse 12, God's word must discern us. But notice verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Would you notice this? But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Are you transparent? Before God? Are you? Are you discoverable? Neither is there anything hid from the eyes of God. What does God see? You say, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, because even right now, as we've just read that verse, God's probably put some things in your mind. was counseling some people the other day and we're going through some struggles. And, you know, I, I was telling them, I said, well, I, I know why God gave me certain things in my devotions a few weeks ago. And I was reading from the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel, God was talking to Ezekiel about the Philistine nation. And he talked about the Philistines and their attitude towards Israel. And he talks about what the Bible calls the old hatred. The Philistines had a long old hatred towards Israel. 
There are a lot of reasons why we don't. One of the main reasons why we don't have resolution to conflicts and their wars and fightings amongst us, as James talks about, is because of old hatred, unsettled debts, unsettled differences and issues like that. And he's talking about here in verse, verse 13 here, he's talking about the fact that, uh, you know, God sees everything and God knows everything. Listen, we come to a church service and say, if we're going to worship God with hearts that are pure, because the Bible says God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him, listen, in spirit and in truth. And for truth to prevail, God must know, God has to reveal to you and I in our hearts what's really going on with it. Because we're either living in absolute truth or there's some things in our lives that we need to bring before the holy presence of God that needs to change. And as God brings us to our minds, He doesn't do so to put us on a guilt trip. And He doesn't do so to make us feel like we're inferior. God does these things because He loves us and He wants us to be able to worship Him in truth. In love. With no pretense. With no disposition towards anyone other than God. And to realize that in a church service, the only person that has my adoration and my affection, my love, is God himself during that, that service there. As he says, we must be earnestly discoverable. God knows. God knows this morning if you're miserable. God knows this morning if you're hurting. God knows this morning if you're discouraged. God knows this morning if you need to be saved. And he wants you to get saved today. He wants you to know that to live in your sin and to go another day, it is appointed unto men once to die. And after this is the judgment. We need to claim our inheritance. We must be earnestly diligent. We must be earnestly discoverable. We must be earnestly discerning. But would you notice in verses 14 to 16, he tells us something else. We must be earnestly dependent. Put some feet to what you're doing. Let God's word work in your heart. Be transparent with God. But notice verse 14. Seeing them, because now, now that this is the part that encourages us. Because remember, the believers back in Joshua's time, they were discouraged. Joshua approached them and says, why is it that you're slack concerning the land? How come you're not going forward? How come you're in the same place? And now we see, that we see, we understand that deep down in heart of hearts, they were discouraged. They felt like, well, how are we going to do this? And how is this all going to get done? And they felt paralyzed. They felt lame. And they felt unable to get that done. Hey, by the way, we feel the same way. We feel like sometimes the Christian life is hard to live. We feel like just getting that new starting point is hard to do. And we feel like making that faith promise commitment is hard to do. And we feel like just learning how to, 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 to witness and give my faith to other people is hard to do. But the Bible tells us here in verses 14 to 16 that we can have faith in God and depend upon our Lord. And He's going to help us along the way. Amen. So verse 14, notice what he says here. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Number one, he tells me dependable on God. Listen, we realize today we need to hold fast unto Jesus Christ. We need to lean upon him. We need to have faith in him. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thy heart, not with part of your heart. Not 99% of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. 100% of your heart. Trust the Lord with all their heart and lean not into their understanding. It means this, when you put your faith in God, there is no plan B about what you're doing. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You know what he's saying there? You can trust Jesus with your life. You can trust Jesus to save you. 
You can trust Jesus that he's going to get you through. You can trust Jesus that when you pray in his name, God will answer that prayer. You can trust him. Why? Because he's a high priest that's entered into the holies. He was, he was tempted like in all points like you and me. But praise God, Jesus was without sin. Look at verse 15 again. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He, he knows our problems. He knows our hurts. But was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the only man that was perfect because he was the son of God. Listen, this morning, whatever you may be going through, you're thinking, well, can God help me? Yes, he can. And yes, he will. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask of thee. So he says, hold fast your profession in him. Then notice verse 16. As we depend upon him, we can come to God with absolute complete faith that he's going to see us through. Look at verse 16. What a wonderful verse. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what our dependence, how we reflect our dependence, how we demonstrate dependence upon God is when we get on our knees, we find a quiet place, a secret place as we talked about Wednesday night, and from the sorrow of our heart, we come to God, and we pour out our heart to God, and He tells us here, you know what, because you're saved, because Jesus is your great high priest, because Jesus will never fail you. How many are glad about that this morning, amen? He'll never fail you, because Jesus is in the business of answering prayers, Because Jesus knows what it's like to be heard. He says, you can come boldly, not shyly, not timidly. You come boldly to God's throne of grace. By the way, by the way, before you're saved, it's a throne of justice. God has to exercise justice against sin. But after you're saved, it's a throne of grace. After you're saved, you realize you go there. You don't have to feel like you're going to be under under this pressure that God's going to do this and do that to you and all these negative thoughts that Satan puts in your mind. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne where you know that you can approach and you can love God and He loves you. And He says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. Notice that we may obtain mercy. By the way, that's what we need more than anything else. We need mercy this morning. Amen? And He says, find grace to help in time of need. About God, I want to possess the land. Well, Hebrews 4.16, hold fast your possession. And come boldly before the throne of grace that you may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God, I want to climb that spiritual mountain. I want to grow further in my faith. Claim Hebrews 4.16. God, I'm going through a trial right now. I feel like there's a setback in my life. Well, God understands we have setbacks and we all have setbacks. But you can come boldly before the throne of grace that you may attain mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Hey, listen, there's no Christian in this room, regardless of who you are, God, that God excludes. This verse is all inclusive. It's available to everyone who calls himself a saved child of God. Amen. And so we see the performance this morning. There's a land to be possessed. Joshua protests and says, how long slack you possess the land? What are you doing about it? And he tells us how we can get it done. He says, I know you've been a little bit backwards on this, but you can go and get it done. And as we go through, notice this, as we go through Joshua 18 and 19, as we close this morning, notice the possession. Go back to Joshua with me, please, and we're done. As we consider the possession... There were seven tribes that were that had not taken their possession. We read through Joshua 18 and 19, and it, what a marvelous account of what they did. Benjamin went in. They took charge and possessed 26 cities and villages. Simeon went in and took possession of 17 cities and villages. Zebulun went in and possessed 12 cities and villages. Issachar went in. And possessed seven cities, uh, sixteen cities and villages. The tribe of Asher went in 
They possess 22 cities and villages. And by the way, as you go through 18 and 19, it lists every one of those major cities. And as you read, you go from there, you have to know, the, the, you just kind of orient yourself to those cities. As you read the rest of the Old Testament, all those cities start to make sense to you as to how they figure and how they come up properly in the reading of Scripture there. The tribe of Naphtali goes in and they possess 19 cities and villages. The tribe of Dan went in and possessed 19 cities and villages. Hey, now we get to that. Joshua chapter 19, verse 48. Hey, those seven tribes, they were earnestly diligent. They were earnestly discerning. They were earnestly discoverable. They were earnestly dependent upon God. They went in and each of them, without any ado, without any interference, without any pushback from the devil, they went in under the power of God, resting on Jesus, praying for mercy and grace to help in the time of need. And guess what? Each one of those seven tribes possessed their cities. You know something great about that? God never sets you me up for failure. He just says, you know what? You've got to have some grit. You've got to look to me. You've got to pray a little bit more in accordance with how the Word of God teaches you how to pray. And you've got to be diligent about God's Word, that you're not reading God's Word just to be a student. You're reading God's Word to let it study you. Amen? A lot of times we get caught up with this knowledge business. We like to impress people with our knowledge. God is not impressed with your knowledge as much as He's impressed with how you're living for Him. Amen? And so notice as we close, we see the possession. They're taking the possession. But one person had not gotten his possession. Guess who that was? Joshua. He made sure everybody else got their possession. And I deep, deep down inside, Joshua probably the God, I hope you didn't forget me. <laughs> and look at verse 49, chapter 19. And when they had made an end of dividing the land for inheritance by their coast, the children of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua, the son of Nun among them. Now, they, they, they didn't forget him. They say, oh, man, thank the Lord that Joshua... Stayed right by us. And Josh encouraged us. He encouraged us to stay diligent. He encouraged us to stay discerning. He encouraged us to stay discoverable. He encouraged us to be dependent. And all the tribes came to say, Joshua, we didn't forget you. Here's what you get. He got a major inheritance in verse 1551 that was part of the tribe of Ephraim that he was from. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked, even Timnath Sirah, in Mount Ephraim, and he built the city, and he dwelt therein. These are the inheritances which Eliezer the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, divided for inheritance by Lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they made an end of dividing the country. And what does that say to us as we close this morning about the possession? Number one, number one, would you write this down? God is good. Amen? God is good. The psalmist wrote this. I think it's Psalm 70. Truly, God is good to Israel. God is good. God is good. Say that with me. God is good. That's what that's telling us in chapters 18 and 19. What about the possession? God is good. Nobody was left out. Everyone got what God wanted them to have. God is good. Then they saw something else. They saw God's goodness, but they saw God's grace. Watch this and we're done. 
Every city was a gift from God. Amen? The Christian life is not an entitlement. It's the gift from God. It's the grace of God. Every good gift, every perfect gift, cometh down from the Father above, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I say it this way. Everything good comes from God because God isn't flaky like you and me. Amen? You and I could be flaky. You and I could wind up being unreliable. Not God. Not God. That's the grace of God. God is there for you. God is there with you. God has never leaves you nor forsakes you. Joshua took the possession that he asked for. As I close this morning, how long slack ye to possess the land? What are you waiting for? Now, if you're saved, it's time to get baptized. You've been in this church for any period of time. Did you know it's God's will for you after you get saved? You're to be baptized at local New Testament church and to be a thriving member of that church. By the way, as I read my New Testament, there's only one kind of member that God advocates, and he advocates a thriving member of a local church. I don't care whatever the 20th century, 21st century has taught you about church membership, and I don't care about whatever church you came out of in the past, that they just had minimal requirements. As I read my Bible and I understand the book of Acts and all the epistles, I understand one thing. As I read about Jesus, what he taught about in the gospel, I understand one thing, that a member of a local New Testament church is to be a thriving member of the church. Serving. Worshipping. Singing. So winning, giving, loving, involved, excited. But maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning, you're not saved. You've never come to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never called on the Lord that you might receive the gift of eternal life. Today, why don't you change that? Today, would you experience God's grace as Joshua did on that day? Would you experience God's grace that an understanding that salvation is the gift of God? God doesn't want to leave you hanging out there with somebody who's still lost, who could spend all of eternity in hell with your sins. He wants you to get saved. He wants you to put your faith and trust in His Son Jesus to save you so that you can have the absolute assurance the moment you put your faith in Christ that you are saved and going to heaven. God wants you, if you're not saved anymore, to go to heaven. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to have your sins forgiven. But you can't do it your way. You've got to come God's way. And that's realizing today, Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for all your sins and my sins. And when He died on the cross for our sins, He satisfied all of God's demands for sins. And all you have to do and I have to do is by faith, repent of our sins and say, Lord, I want to receive you this morning to wash away those sins and to make me a child of God. Now, this morning you're here today. We have what's called an invitation right where you're seated, in the privacy of your own seat. Just you and God. You draw a circle around you in that chair, and you're saying, God, today you spoke to me about the need for relationship, about the need of not slacking off in my life, and realize today, first of all, if I'm not saved, to get saved today. And secondly, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to not stand still, but to give the earnest heed to the things which we've heard, 
lest at any time we let them slip. I wonder, there are many Christians today who have yet to experience all the blessings of God because they're slack to possess the land. You ought to do something about that today. God shows us how. We saw that this morning. As I give the invitation, don't delay. I urge you right where you're seated to call on the Lord to save you. I urge you wherever you're seated today to say, Lord, I'm going to take that step forward. I'm going to be earnestly diligent. I'm going to labor, therefore, to obtain that rest. You do that this morning and watch how God, as you trust him by faith, what he'll do in your life. Father, this morning, thank you today, Lord, for the great encouragement that that Joshua gives us in Joshua 18 and 19 about possessing the land. We've seen, Lord, the protests, how long slack you to possess the land. We see, Lord, a performance. The Bible tells us, as you did in the, in the book of Hebrews, we need to be diligent. We need to let God's word discern us. We must be transparent. And, Lord, we must just realize that in our weakness, by faith, we can trust you in what you'll do. But Father, help us as Christians today. It's time to take possession. It's time to take control. Take possession. Take, take hold of what you want us to have. I wonder how many Christians this morning would say, Pastor Fong, God has spoken to me this morning about the fact I've been slack concerning my possession. I've been slack concerning taking charge of what God wants to do. It's time. We need to get in the game. We need to understand it's game time. We need to realize it's game time. We need to take charge of what God wants to do. And God has spoken to your heart. You'd say, Pastor, pray for me. God's spoken to me. I'm going to take possession of the land. I'm going to go forward. I'm not going to slack off. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be discernible. I'm going to be discoverable. I'm going to be dependent. Pastor, pray for me this morning that I'll go forward and possess the land. You'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me this morning. God bless you. Who else this morning? Who else this morning? Oh, certainly there's more of us this morning that realize today we need to go forward. Are you, are you content just staying there and not taking possession? How many more would say, Pastor, pray for me this morning. Now take possession of the land. Thank you. How about you this morning that's not saved? If you know this morning you're not 100% sure that if something happened to you today that you're going to heaven, why don't you settle that this morning? Why don't you call on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning to save you from your sins? Here's how you can be saved from your sins and be guaranteed heaven. Right where you're seated right now, you can pray a prayer just like this. I'll pray very slowly. You can pray this prayer. Make this your prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess today I am a sinner and I need to be saved. I repent of all my sins and I believe your son Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again from the dead I take Jesus right now into my life to be my savior my God and my best friend thank you today for saving me, Lord. In Jesus' name. Head still bowed, eyes closed. Who this morning would say with truthfulness and honesty, Pastor Fong, this morning I just prayed that prayer. I was not sure I was saved, but I prayed that prayer and asked your son Jesus to save me just now. You'd raise your right hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I just prayed and asked Jesus to save me. Anyone like that? Be a man or woman, boy or girl. I prayed that prayer and asked Christ to save me today. Father, you've seen hearts. Neither is any creature, anything hid that shall not be made manifest. Father, I pray the, the working of the Holy Spirit be real and moving in our hearts, convincing and helping us to go forward.
have your way during this invitation time, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand. Brother Vaughn's going to lead us to singing. And I'm going to ask you with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if God has spoken to you, maybe make your way to the front and find a place to pray as a Christian. And as a person that maybe has never believed on Jesus Christ, I have men and women here that are here to encourage you to call on the Lord to be your Savior. You know you need to be saved. Maybe you might turn to the friend that brought you to church and says, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to get saved today. Would you call on the Lord today? Would you help one of our altar workers help you? How many Christians today, you felt like before you came to service today, you were stagnating, going nowhere, and now the Lord has spoken to you about being diligent, about doing more for Christ. Not sitting on the sidelines, but realizing it's game time. Game time means we're going in to play that game. We're going to claim the championship. It's game time. It's time to take hold of things for the Lord. Would you do that this morning? Dear friend, if you're not saved this morning, would you trust Christ today? His throne of grace is a throne of justice until you get saved. He calls upon you. Justice will serve for us when Christ died on the cross for our sins. He invites you today to trust Jesus to be your Savior. Would you do that this morning? Father, around the auditorium, we thank you for hearts that have been tender, ears that have listened. Bless the word of God today. It's game time. Use it to encourage us that you might be glorified. Father, we praise the work of God is still being done. Do a great work in our hearts to the glory and praise of Christ. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated for just a couple more minutes. We have a Connect video that I want you to see just to alert you to some things. Be here tonight. What time? 5.15. If you want good parking, yeah, come tonight. We encourage you to come this evening. It's free. We ask you to come this evening for the service. Bring someone with you that you can introduce to the church. It'll be a wonderful time. And we're protesting God to do some great things tonight. Be here tonight. It'll be a great program this evening that will encourage your heart. Let's watch a connect video, and Brother Danny will lead us in closing prayer. Hope to see you in the back as we shake hands. The Falls Baptist Church group, if you guys want to be at your display table, they have some materials about Baptist College Ministry there of Wisconsin and some wonderful music CDs that I pray that you'll, you'll purchase and add to your collection of things that will help encourage your home. If you guys want to make your way over there, that will be a blessing.